This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Adam Meister, the CFO of Talon, and you are listening to the CFO and Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 554. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to David Moss, CFO of Immune Bio, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company specializing in immuno-oncology. Now, David entered the C-suite via the world of private equity and venture capital. When it comes to the CFO role, David Moss says operations are certainly important. But inside the realm of clinical stage biopharmaceutical companies, strategy means properly financing your company. It means achieving the correct capital structure and understanding the laws of foreign jurisdictions, the impact on taxes, rebates, etc. Our discussion begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. financial capital markets here in the United States that, that really, I think, 
resources to grow because without, I would say, easy access to to capital and in um, many different forms of capital, by the way, uh, allowed, it allows small businesses to become something big. And, and as a result, I think that's why we see there's there's so many large successful enterprises here in the United States that you don't necessarily find uh, in other parts of the world. You didn't uh, step out of college and become an entrepreneur, though. Were you with? Uh, did you get into the financial markets? Did you work on Wall Street? Where did you come from? Well, it, it's interesting. You know, when I was in business school, I was actually in Houston Business School at Rice University, and uh, a friend of ours in San Diego. San Diego was a very large biotech city at the time. I think it used to be the number two biotech city after San Francisco. I think it's now three after Boston. And uh, we had a lot of friends who became very successful in, uh, in biotech. And one of our family friends had introduced me to Baylor College of Medicine, and they were developing a tech transfer department. And that tech transfer department was essentially um, taking licenses of technology that they were developing, creating businesses around them, and financing them. And I got involved on that side of the business uh, early on in business school. And what happened is one of the businesses that, uh, that was financed by, by venture capital became quite successful and was bought out. And I frankly was lucky enough to get hired by some of the venture people that, that originally funded the business. And that set me off into the venture side of the business where we made investments into, it was on the West Coast, up in Seattle, we made venture investments. This is now before the Internet. All up and down the West Coast, in, in, in mainly biotech, healthcare, but also technology. And then the Internet started to take off, and we started to cross more into, uh, I'd say, healthcare IT and technology-related companies. And that, that further drove my interest in relationships with Wall Street because, obviously, the goal of a venture capital and somebody who invests in private equity is, is obviously to make a good bet on the business, help them grow, but then at some point they need to access larger pools of capital, which they typically do on, on, on Wall Street. And uh, so I started to build a strong relationship with uh, some of the investment bankers and investment banks in Wall Street in conjunction with the businesses that we were trying to, to, to grow. Now, an important chapter in your career, David, was with Reliant Services Group. And can, can you tell us about that, uh, how you became involved in how you view that chapter of your career? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, Reliant was a very interesting story. Uh, it really formed out of the financial crisis that happened, if you remember, in 2008. And um, what, what, what happened is I had a very good friend of mine who was very successful in the student loan business. Um, you might recall that prior to the financial crisis, there were uh, a lot of uh, third-party companies that were um, recapitalizing, refinancing student loans at lower interest rates. And these were private businesses. And when the financial crisis took place, um, there were all sorts of, uh, of problems, mainly ethical problems, because a lot of these um, a, a lot of these loans were sold through universities, and uh, there were there were some disclosure issues, et cetera, et cetera. The government essentially took over that business, and so overnight, you know, these large businesses that were refinancing student loans were, were essentially out of businesses. You might recall that companies like CIT Group, Merrill Lynch, all these big businesses were were in uh, Lehman Brothers, et cetera, were very situation. So what happened is um, small businesses at the time had a very difficult time to get loans uh, from banks to grow their business. And uh, the fellow who uh, came up with the idea for Reliant uh, came to me and he said he had an idea to really help finance small businesses and service them that banks were not able to service. Uh, we, we, we liked the model. And I put together a group of individual investors, uh, including myself, and we led a, a, basically the seed financing business in Reliant. Reliant uh, is based here in San Diego, uh, is a fairly large provider of, of, of um, small business loans today. I, uh, I can't tell you the exact size, but they're very, very large in the, in the, the many, many billions. And, um, and in 2015, after that becomes the, uh, became quite successful, their, their challenge was actually accessing enough capital to loan, and uh, we ended up selling the business to a very large, successful private equity player who's since grown that business uh, quite a bit. So it was what I would call a bittersweet transaction. 
sweet in the sense that obviously it was very successful financially and, and we built the business out of scratch. Um, bitter in the sense that uh, we sold it because we, the company grew so fast, we needed large access to, to capital. But if we were able to obviously um, supply that capital and keep it, it would have been a much bigger business today uh, than at the time we sold it in terms of, of value. Now, you know what I think is also interesting about your career is that it wasn't always biotech. Quite a few of the biotech CFOs we speak to, they go back 20, 30 years in biotech. You've had a very varied career in terms of the types of businesses that you've been involved with over time. And uh, I'm just curious, when did biotech become the focus? Or, or, or maybe it was always the target, but what, what would you tell us? So, Jack, I think you're a very interesting answer. So, biotech was actually what I started with. If you, after I left business school working at, at Taylor College of Medicine, that's right, transfers. It's really, it's really my, my, my passion. You know, when you make a difference uh, at, a, at the bedside to a patient, there's, there's really nothing more rewarding. And obviously the way I look at it is that, I think the way most people look at it is that if you can make a difference at the bedside, then essentially all the stakeholders in your business are successful, your shareholders, your employees, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the patients come first. What happened is, when I was in the venture capital space, you have to, this goes back, you know, to the, to the mid-90s, people used to ask me, they would say, what do you do, David? And I would say venture capital. And their first, their first answer was, what is that? People back then didn't know what the term venture capital meant. In fact, it was a very small industry. Uh, you, you know, we're going now back well before the Internet. And, and... I had to explain what venture capital was. Now everybody knows the term venture capital, but the original venture capitalists were generalists. They would invest in anything. I mean, we, we in, in, in our original uh, venture group that I was able to join, we had a coal company, we had a fitness equipment company with Callaway Golf. We had, uh, we started Adams Golf as an investment. We did um, biotech, health. We did anything that we thought had value. And then what happened really around the spawning of the Internet is that venture became more widely known, and they started to specialize. You would have venture capital that only invest in communications or chips, uh, like, like microchips or software or a particular area of just biotech. Uh, and, and the whole generalist approach went away. And so, when, so I was kind of originally, uh, let's say, cultivated or educated or, or taught to be more of a generalist in venture capital. And so when I uh, left, which was in 2001, and, and wanted to start, uh, I went to start really building and financing my own businesses, um, it, 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 I, I kept that, that kind of background. And, and what I, when I saw a good team of people or when I saw a very good idea that, that, that maybe was missing um, uh, some components of, of what might help create a successful business, I would try and help build it and, and finance it. Uh, and so I would still say that, that, that 80 plus percent of what I do is in the healthcare space. Uh, and, and the things that happen outside of that that would be in either technology or I've only done one um, business finance company, which was Reliant, was really just because of, of the people. It's the people that drove it. Well, that's a, a nice meeting for us to ask you about uh, Immune Bio. What was it uh, that attracted you? How did you become involved? And then we'll ask you about, um, you know, the finance function and how you sure. established it. But, but tell us about the opportunity here and, and how you became involved. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jack. So uh, Immune Bio is a company that actually I was co-founder of. There's three people. There's myself and a fellow named uh, Professor Mark Liddell and another, uh, Dr. R.J. Tessie, and the three of us were, were friends before we, we founded the business. Uh, one of them had a very good idea uh, that we essentially uh, self-financed, and the idea, uh, we, we ran a, a handful of experiments. The experiments came out positive, and that really became the basis of the company. As we formed the company, um, you know, when you, when you form a small business, you wear all hats, and we like to say that if you take it, you get need to take out the trash, you take out the trash. Um, but you do anything, you, you do everything you need to do to make the business successful. And we raised really money from ourselves primarily to start it, and then we raised money from some of our friends. And one of the mantras that we've had in our business is, is just to keep things
And as the business grew, we were able to get uh, another product platform from a, a company called Vencore. Vencore is a, a Adolfo NASDAQ listed company. Uh, and they're about, I think they're around a $2 billion business. And the, the second platform of technology that we licensed from Vencore is actually a, a really interesting piece of technology. And really, essentially what it is, is that you know, all humans, you know, you and me on this phone and everybody around us, as they age, we get this kind of low-grade chronic inflammation. And this inflammation drives disease, various disease states. And as this inflammation grows as we age, the diseases get worse, and they, they cause, for example, they can cause neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. They can cause liver diseases. They can cause um, different, different, they can accelerate different forms of cancer and things to that sort. And the drug that we license from Zincor is, uh, is a platform that allows us to deal with, with chronic inflammation. It's a really interesting, unique drug. We feel that it's, um, it can make a huge difference in a, in a wide variety of patients. And so we're, we've financed this business with the idea to move these through clinical trials to see if we can make a difference at the bedside with patients. And, well, when you arrive, uh, let's find out about, the, you know, your team will get more uh, of the practical information here about <laughs> what you needed to get the visibility into the organization. Um, whether, you know, whether it was regular reports or what have you, how did you, uh, what were your priorities as you came and you decided, you know, I really need to, to set up my team here and get things rolling? Well, I mean, that's the beauty of it is that we were able to create our team from scratch. And, uh, and so we were able to pick the people and, and build the department and kind of the internal controls and the policies or procedures on our own from scratch. And, and, and back to what we were talking about earlier about simplicity, we wanted to keep this very clean and very simple, and um, so we don't have a lot of uh, uh, a lot of complexity between you know be behind the way we built the business and the way that um, the finance and the accounting work. So it's you know we have a we have a very adept uh, audit committee that's where that that essentially drives all of our policies and procedures and internal controls. We've got a, a relatively small staff of bookkeepers and accountants that drive a lot of our reporting, you know, according to a lot of these policies and procedures. That gets uh, obviously fed up to, to me for final review, and then it gets reviewed by auditors, and there's this whole um, process that we do through our, our financial reporting uh, because we are a listed NASDAQ company. But what we, what we do is we schedule everything well ahead of time. You know, our goal is to, to, to have a um, a very simple calendar that, that is well ahead of schedule, and we get everybody to agree to calendar dates, including our auditors, well ahead of schedule so that we don't run into um, crunch periods. You know, one thing that, that happens in accounting that we don't like, and I, I would I'd recommend to anybody, is to get all of your partners on a schedule early because when you start running into crunch periods, which so often happens in accounting, whether you're doing taxes or auditing or whatever it might be, is that when you get towards the end, people are up late. Uh, I think things get done almost too fast, which will drive mistakes. And if you can, you can avoid all that really just by by uh, by planning this. I kind of like it. it kind of reminds me back to my 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 college days of, of procrastinating. If you procrastinate to do, you know, let's say a paper or whatever it might be, your your homework. Uh, you knew the quality of the work when you were turning it in as you were working on it, you know, hours before it was due. Same thing with the, with the county. As a clinical stage uh, biopharmaceutical firm, I would imagine there are regular clinical trials that are underway that you want to be informed on. You want to make certain you under, you know, that if something's not going to go the path that was originally thought, you're going to be alerted. Can, can you tell us how you get that visibility? And I have to believe it's a relationship, you know, with the clinical team, with the R&D folks. What would you tell us? Yeah. So uh, that's exactly right. It's, it's uh, 
depends how the studies are done, whether they're what we call blinded or not. When they're blinded, the data is essentially all released at one go, and everybody sees it close to the same time, usually after the numbers are crunched. If it's unblinded, we see it um, periodically as, uh, as patients are dosed. But we have, um, you know, there's, there's very, very well-known guidelines that um, the FDA and other regulatory jurisdictions follow. And you have to uh, follow these guidelines, you know, no, no, no different than, than the guidelines we have for auditing and things of that sort. And there are um, what we call contract research organizations, CROs, they act as really, let's call them the, the auditors that drive these trials. And as they drive these trials, they have very strict reporting requirements in terms of how the data is recorded and how it's locked and then how it's unlocked and, and, and viewed. And, and then certainly we have a team here uh, within the company, a uh, chief medical officer and uh, a chief science officer that, that drive this process. Um, much like we drive the financial reporting, they drive the, the clinical data reporting. And then this is all brought to the top of the organization for review and reporting and, uh, and, and, and filing with any of the regulatory agencies as, as possible. And, and you know, from a, one other thing I'll, I'll add, Jack, that I think is unusual about our business that I think others could leverage from, is as a small business, you're always keen on non-pollutive uh, funding sources because uh, these clinical trials, we call it the sport of kings, it's, it's a very, very expensive uh, business. Uh, it has, it, it's a very high risk and it has, obviously, very high reward if you're successful, but it is extremely expensive to, to do. It takes a very long time. And so one of the things that we do is there's certain jurisdictions around the world where the government support this type of R&D. And, and they do so by providing uh, R&D cash rebates. They're not tax credits, which is what we're, what we associate a lot with R&D here in the United States. They're actual cash rebates. So jurisdictions like Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, and other parts of Europe, you know, for every dollar we spend over there, we can get up to close to 50 cents back in cash that we can reinvest into R&D. So one of the things that we've done uh, for R&D and software companies and other companies that do R&D can apply for these types of things is that we have wholly owned subsidiaries in these jurisdictions where we're able to, and we have obviously accounting firms and tax reporting firms in these jurisdictions as well, where we're able to take full advantage of these R&D rebates because we run some of these trials over in those jurisdictions. Um, and so I would encourage, you know, small R&D-related enterprises that might be listening to your, your podcast to investigate those, um, uh, those jurisdictions. It's a, it's a really great way to – that way you get, for example, like the currency arbitrage because the U.S. dollar has been so strong and countries like the Australian or Canadian dollar has been very weak. You also get an R&D rebate. So your dollar can go much, much further for R&D in those jurisdictions today than they can here in the United States. You used the term uh, blinded trial. For those of us who are not in the realm, tell us what's the significance of this approach. Yeah. So the way it works is that you really want an unbiased, true opinion of a trial. And you've heard the term placebo. And what they'll do is they'll create what we call arms of a trial. So, for example, they might have two arms of a trial. And let's say each of those arms have 40 patients in it. And one arm will get the actual drug and the other arm will not get the drug, they'll get a placebo. And then what they'll do is they'll run that trial for a period of time because with the disease, you usually, it usually takes time before you see uh, a result. So, for example, in the case of cancer, we look for what we call progression-free survival, meaning are we making a difference in the tumor? Is the tumor going away? Are the people living longer? And to do so, you really have to go over a period of time, have different arms, and not know who's actually getting the drug and who is getting the drug. And then when all of the patients have been enrolled and they've all gone through that period of time, you unblind it, meaning you unwrap all the data, you look at it, you'll discover who actually got the drug and who didn't. At the time during the trial, you don't know. And then that will give you really a true indication of whether you've got an efficacious drug or not. And, and you'll do this, um, let's say, in, for example, let's say a phase two trial. And if you get uh, a positive readout, you'll move it to a much larger scale phase three trial. Or in the case, you know, sometimes, and it's, it's relatively rare, 
if you're targeting a disease that doesn't have any options and your data is very, very strong in your phase two, you can also sometimes even get accelerated approval. So there, there, there's, there's lots of different nuances around it, but that's what I would say is something very, very simple. I'm sorry about the terms. That's one thing that I, I'm glad to interrupt me because that, that's one thing I will do is uh, I'll mention a term because I hear it every day, and, and I, I, I apologize a lot of listeners I know uh, don't. So glad you asked. Part of what we are exploring with finance leaders is how they're communicating with different stakeholders and how that communication has maybe changed, whether there's a new report that they issue or maybe they issue a report more frequently. Maybe it's just a number that they suddenly realized part of the organization needed that to, to view more frequently. So they began to uh, expose certain numbers to other to a broader part of the organization. Maybe it's how you communicate with your investors. Maybe if you look back in time, whether you've changed how you you realize that it would be more important to certain investors to have this information rather than you know what I've been supplying them. Uh, anything come to mind when you think about those stakeholders and how you communicate today? Yeah, you know that is a super question. Um, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I didn't think about that. But that this you know, we have we're always struggling with that. To be frank with you, it's very difficult to know exactly what your investor base is looking for, and their investor base is is, is clearly segmented into many different categories. I mean, we have you know, obviously the 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 retail investor who may or may not be educated about biotech. A lot of them are. And then you obviously have the, uh, the institutions that might specialize in biotech. And so really what we do is we try and craft multiple presentations geared towards different audiences. So in the case of, let's say, retail, we try and keep it very, very short. We, we try and do 15, 10, 15 minutes, and then really open it up more to Q&A because we find that when you allow those people to talk to you, you have, you're able to really answer what they're, they're – we want to know what their real questions are because they generally come to a conversation – with questions, a lot of times, you know, they're a little bit shy to ask them, but we try and coax it out. With regards to the high-end institutions, you know, we, we basically open up the Komodo and go really detailed into science. And the way we like to, the, the way we've prepared ourselves is that in each of our scientific buckets or silos that we focus on, we just have a tremendous amount of research, and we like to say that we can jump as deep down the rabbit hole as anybody can jump and basically go toe-to-toe with them. It's a question of how, how what, what's the knowledge base of, of your audience and how deep they want to go. So we struggle with that. You know, in certain, in, certain issues, in certain instances, for example, when we have, let's say, a major milestone, we do a press release about it. You know, how do we craft that press release? Do we craft it such that, um, you know, it's more towards the general audience, or do we really get very scientific about the data? And, you know, we, we go back and forth all the time on it because sometimes, you know, when you have very good data, you want to just release all the, 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 the core data. A lot of times that's misunderstood or not understood by your retail market. So, you know, we, we, we try and do both, but it's, 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 not a, it's, an, it's, it's not a perfect solution. So I think we haven't found one. This is the uh, part of the interview, David, where we ask for a finance strategic moment which, of course, you've had hundreds of these, but we're looking for a moment where you, uh, because of your lines of sight into an opportunity or a risk, whatever it may have been, may have changed direction for a company or an organization, an investment, whatever it might have been. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? So one of the first strategic financial moments that I remember very vividly when I was a venture capitalist, we were seed investors and, and investors of a large group of other people in a company called Pets.com, which, you know, is synonymous with the, uh, the, the pet crash of the, the internet bubble of uh, 2000 and 2001. And um, what we did there is there was a lot of capital that was uh, behind this business, and we had a small entrepreneurial team. And one of the things we did is we hired, we thought it was a, a, a good idea to hire an executive who was from a Fortune 50 company to really run it. In retrospect, I, that turned out to be uh, a big mistake um, because somebody from a large business 
has a very difficult time adjusting to something that's very dynamic and, 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 and needs really a lot of, um, I'd say, getting your hands dirty, you know. This is the, you got to be able to take out the trash type of a situation. you got to wear all hats. And I think that was a big, big issue with regards to the success of Pets.com. Because if you look at companies like Chewy, which went public, I think, earlier this year, quite successfully, it's essentially Pets.com, right? Uh, and uh, and here we were, were where, you know, we ended up spending a lot of money on an automated distribution facility right next to FedEx uh, for a pet food company, you know, before we actually determined that we were going to have a successful business. And so that was a big financial moment, and let's call it a mistake, um, that I learned from. Uh, I like to say that I have a Pets.com sweatshirt, and it was a $3 million sweatshirt because that's essentially what we lost on our investment in that business. Um, another very uh, strategic moment in our business at Indian was something that we did that was very unusual, um, and, and we did it mainly because of um, the, the financial situation, is that when companies go public, they typically go and hire an investment bank first, then they go and draft all their financial documents, and then go and do their IPO and raise the money. We did the opposite here at Indian, which is probably very, very rare, is that we went and actually drafted our financial documents, got them approved by the regulatory authorities like the SEC and the NASDAQ, and then went and got our banks to do our capital raise. We did that because we wanted to be in the driver's seat. You know, we kind of have this view that that you want to drive your own destiny and then be, uh, if you can put yourself more in the driver's seat, show that you can do it, and then try and, uh, you know, bring your financial players on board. And that's what we, and that's what we did here. And we think, uh, as a result, what does that mean? I mean, there's positives and negatives with everything that you do. The, the, the positive is, is that because we drove it, we drove mainly our own terms of how we wanted to drive the deal. And we also were able to maintain a lot of insider ownership um, because we're big believers in this business. We want, you know, as we were saying earlier, we believe in simplicity, so we wanted a simple cap structure. We didn't want to go into preferreds. We didn't want to go into convertible debts. We didn't want to go into warrants or anything like that. And so we kind of drove that on our own. The negative is, is that, you know, maybe we weren't able to attract, uh, well, I know we weren't able to attract as large an investor audience as we would have if we were more flexible on our, on our terms and our deal structure. So, um, you know, that led to us ringing the bell in the NASDAQ, which we were actually the first biotech IPO 2019 uh, because we drove it ourselves. You might recall there was the government shutdown earlier this year. Uh, we would have done it earlier, but because of the government shutdown, we weren't able to, uh, to lift until... Once that was over, we were the first one out of the gate, and uh, ringing the bell was a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, happy moment for the company and for all of us. Hi, it's Jack. We have a quick thought leader minute for you. Throughout my entire career, I've seen this. There are typically executives will fall into one or two buckets. One bucket says. I want FP&A at the table with me when I'm making my decision. They're a valuable strategic partner. And you are in with them from the beginning, and they're open to your ideas. Another one says, I don't want finance to know what's going on. I want to manage my business the way I want to manage it, and I'm only going to show what I need to show to finance. Thought Leader listeners, that is the voice of Glenn Snyder, Vice President of Corporate FP&A for Digital Realty. Join us when Glenn answers a few of my questions in a short, concise, and insightful interview immediately following our discussion today with CFO David Moss, who enters the mentoring round with us next after this message. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. 
We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We kicked off the mentoring round with David Moss with a, with a big question. David, uh, it is, what is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? Uh, I, you know, look at the stock market. Uh, we're, I think we've had the best bull run that the stock market's ever had. Uh, I believe it just happened uh, the other day that we can now say that it's the best one ever. The financial resources out there for businesses is better than I've ever seen it before. Uh, there's a lot of venture capital. Um, as a result, you get uh, large financing deals that, that are being done that, that, that uh, and maybe higher valuations that have never done, been done before. We've seen that with the likes of WeWorks and, and Uber and all these unicorn-type companies, but, but also for smaller businesses, which is really the vast, vast majority. It's 99% of those businesses, you know, access to capital at banks, access to capital through third-party uh, um, groups, uh, groups like Reliant, or access to capital through Wall Street really has never has never been better for such a long period of time. So it's, and, and, and the economy has been strong. So it's a great, great, great time to grow your business. Um, it's, it's a very bullish environment. Uh, there's a lot of technology and biotech that's been happening, and I believe that you know, over the next uh, two decades, we're going to see a real revolution in what's happening in, in, in biotech. Biotech is still its infancy in terms of, of, of um, what it can do. And uh, I think that, you know, market-wise, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of political fray going on, but market-wise in terms of what we see for access to capital and, and, and growth in the economy and employment, is, is very, very strong. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. You could have clearly built your career in private equity and venture capital. You could have stayed there. You could have remained uh, the, the executive who advises companies on finance and strategy. Uh, but here you stepped into the CFO role. And we'd be curious to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> What, what do you make of it, and what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you as you, you sort of stepped out of that realm and into the, the C-suite here as an operator? You know, a little bit different. You know, I, I, I really created this position for myself more than stepped into it, is what I would say. You know, as a co-founder of the business, we all take um, roles. And my, strong, my strongest role is really in the finance and the operations of the business. So... I like to say I'm a chief finance officer rather than financial officer. Uh, reporting, numbers, uh, accounting, uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's relatively um, formulaic. It's what, where the, where the, um, the, the strategy really comes into is how you properly finance your business, how you structure your business, how you capitalize your business, uh, its capital structure. Um, you know, some of these, for example, foreign jurisdictions that we talked about in terms of how you take advantage of government uh, programs, whether they're rebates or taxes, those are where the fun, that's where the fun stuff is. And, um, and that's where, uh, you know, I like to excel. I'm also, you know, a little bit more than just a chief finance officer. We like to drive a lot of the strategic decisions of the business, um, which can be uh, part of the science. So, there's really three founders of this business. We each have an expertise in our area. Um, and what we do is we get together and we make decisions as a group. But at the end of the day, the person has the, the, the expertise in their area will have the final say. My final say is around, obviously, the finances uh, and the operations of the business. Uh, our medical officer is, is going to be around the clinical trials and the programs and, and, and uh, the direction of the business as well. And then our chief science guy is going to be around the science of the business. So a um, little bit more than your, I, I would say, probably um, just your chief financial officer, which makes, it, makes me pretty much an odd bird and probably a difficult person for you to interview. 
We like to always ask one of these types of more personal questions, ask our finance leaders to reflect a little bit about their their personal habits or their daily routine, uh, something outside the business realm, really, something, however, that might have contributed in some way to their success or they, they, they believe has helped them. Uh, does anything come to mind when I ask for a personal habit or routine you believe has contributed to your success in some way? Sure, sure. You know, I... I well, first of all, I love getting up early in the morning, and I love coming to work. I, I really enjoy what we do. I see the big vision. I'm a big believer in what we're trying to do here. Uh, you know, very bullish uh, on our on our outcome. And as a result, you know, me along with some of our other insiders have been the investors in this business uh, in every round of the business, essentially. Um, you know, personally, I think that staying healthy is one of the most important things you can do. So uh, I like to, I'll step out, you know, two or three times a week for lunch and exercise. I like to go to the gym and I like to exercise. Uh, we do a lot of regular walks here at our company. Uh, we're fortunately in a very, very nice location and we get our team together and we do a lot of walks. But I think, you know, mentally, uh, is uh, staying healthy is, is good for you mentally. Uh, it's actually good for you physically. I think it keeps you uh, more uh, attentive at work. And uh, so eating right, uh, exercising is a big part of my routine, and I encourage it for, for everybody. Is there a, a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? It doesn't have to be about finance. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I think a really good book that I think should be required reading for most people that are in the C-suite is a book called Cantor's Dilemma. It's really about the ethics of decision-making and the ethics of, uh, of, um, of healthcare, in, a, in essence. But I think the issue of ethics permeates throughout all businesses. Uh, you know, people, especially in the healthcare, whether they're a physician or uh, a business person, uh, ethics plays a huge role in decision-making, and I would encourage, I think it almost should be required really reading in college, in, in, in graduate school, but a book called Cantor's Dilemma. It's actually written by a fellow named Carl Dazari, who was the inventor of the birth control pill. And this is a, it's a novel, is that right? I'm, I'm quickly looking online here. Interesting. Well, that's a, that's a first for us. We haven't had this recommended before, so excellent. We always like to get new selections. What types of things usually are? Well, we, we get a little too much Jim Collins. Let me put it that way. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're really uh, excited when we get something new. And this looks rather interesting. I have to say, uh, I haven't heard about it before, so I look forward to. It. I encourage you to read it. Yeah, it's a quick read. You'll, you'll, it's a very quick read. Excellent. Excellent. So, so we're up to our final question where I get to ask you to look forward for us finally and share with us what are your priorities in the coming 12 months as CFO of Immune Bio? My priorities are really very, very straightforward. You know, our, our, there's three things, three things we like to say that drive our business. It's uh, number one is data. Number two is data, and number three is data. Data in healthcare and biotech is the decision-making factor in whether you have a successful business or not. We've got four programs in the clinic, which is a lot for a very small business, and we're very geared on generating data. So my job in the next 12 months is to make sure that the company is appropriately capitalized in a very, very simple way to make sure that not only in the next 12 months, but the next few years, that this business is able to generate the data or have the opportunity to generate the data such that either corporate partnerships or licensing deals or some sort of financial transaction can take place so that we can do more non-dilutive funding to drive our, our programs to approve. David Moss, thank you for joining us on CFO Speaking to Glenn Snyder, Vice President of Corporate FP&A 
at Digital Realty. Glenn, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Jack. Glenn, I'll, let's find out first a little bit about Digital Realty. Tell us about this company. I know you're San Francisco-based. Uh, I know it's a technology company, but, but uh, tell us. Give us a nice overview. Yeah, so Digital Realty is a data center REIT, and a REIT is real estate investment trust, so we own properties all over the world. In fact, we are in 200, we own over 210 data centers in 36 metros and 15 countries. And those, in those properties are data centers, which are effectively warehouses of servers. And so everything that sits on the cloud or internal corporate servers, everything that you're doing that would be cloud-related is really done within a data center. So now, Glenn, you arrived uh, three years ago, and what is the what is the challenge? What are you what are you tasked with? So when I first started, it was really to build out the corporate FP&A team, and one of the big focuses was to be able to analyze and report the most accurate and impactful data in order to influence decision making, and that is really the core focus of any FP&A team. And I think that we've really been able to do that. We've developed a lot of great thought partnerships with our business leaders and been able to really integrate finance into the decision-making process. And we can measure that by seeing the business leaders at our firm come to us so that we're able to opine and vet data and ideas before they actually get to the executives to make a decision. Part of what we, we've been asking finance leaders is that as their uh, fp and teams perform and, uh, you know, analyze the data, look at the data, whether they, they come forward with new metrics or whether there's a, a data set maybe, that was, was it, you know, brought to the attention of the organization at large? Is there anything like that that comes to mind? Well, I think before I got here, the company knew what their key metrics were and they were working on those. What we, what we really did is we added a new dimension of that data where we brought additional discipline and transparency to make sure that business leaders really understood the drivers of what was behind that data, but also what that data meant to the company. And we really started having conversations around financial data. And that was the big thing is that, you know, being that we are financial planning and analysis, we start and end with our financials. And so that's really the conversation that we're having is the impact that various business lines have on our revenues, our expenses, our core FFO, which is, of course, the term funds from operations that, that we use in the REIT industry. We know that the FP&A team is really needs to be tightly integrated today, but how do you achieve that? Well, it starts by building trust. That is the most important thing. And you build trust by being a good partner where you are providing information on time and accurately. That could be through reporting or just answering ad hoc questions as they come up. But then it goes, if you really want to get to that thought partnership stage, it's about being proactive. It's about thinking about their business and interacting with, with the business leaders in a way that you are asking good questions probing for things, coming up with new ideas to show that FP&A isn't just about, hey, here's your budget variance analysis and, and here's how you're doing against your budget, but more around let's talk about where you are today, where you're trying to go, and how we can help you get there. Because finance and FP&A in particular is in a unique spot that we have a certain discipline, but we have that understanding of the financial data and what it's going to take. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to grow your business, you're going to have to tie it back to financials. What does growing the business mean? It's greater revenue. It could be greater market share. Whatever it happens to be, it requires investment, which is going to be on the expense side. You might be analyzing it based on a return on investment. FP&A needs to be proactive to really build that trust with the business leader and make an impact. Now, can you share with us what parts of the business, and I'm sure the overall business uh, FP&A has influenced, but are there certain parts of the business that FP&A has had influence, let's just say, over the last 12 months? Uh, here's an area where FP&A really uh, made a thumbprint on the business. Sure. Now, the, the area in particular, I mean, because we're a REIT, we have a couple different aspects to FP&A where we have our property side and we have our corporate side. I manage the corporate side. 
And so what I would say is really what we have, have made our big, where we've made our biggest impact is on expense management and looking at identifying economies of scale in the business. One of the things is as you're, as you're growing, I mean, digital realty is a growth company. And as we are building and growing, we always are looking at adding more people and in areas we build a new building, we have to have people to go in and man those buildings. What happens is, is identifying how you get to a point where you can become more efficient at what you're doing. So each time you add something on the top line for revenue, you don't have to add as much on the, on the expense side. And that's really the impact that we've made over the last couple of years is to really look at how do we become more efficient at what we're doing and so we could go over and return better results for our shareholders. Now, uh, you mentioned, uh, just to get specific with expense management, was it that expenses just weren't visible enough inside the company and uh, maybe it was a new dashboard, maybe it was a new, uh, you know, configuration where the, you know, these numbers just became more visible to certain groups of employees? I don't know. Does anything like that happen? Well, so when I first joined, that was one of the things that uh, I was asked to build out was this corporate at P&A team because we were doing reports at an executive level. And we were then the executives were responsible for managing their teams. But there wasn't anything being done at lower levels. So the people were actually working out in the individual properties or managing an individual cost center or managing projects. And what we did is we pushed the data down to them. We started creating reports on a monthly basis so people can understand down to the GL account level. But then we also inserted ourselves so that we didn't have to worry about the business leaders working directly with accounting. Because accounting, they do a fantastic job at what they do, but they kind of speak what I like to call accounting ease. And when they start talking about accruals and things, sometimes business leaders don't know what the accountants are talking about. FP&A sits in between the two. So we, are, we work as that translator, and we really get to help drive that additional understanding into what's behind the numbers, what they mean, so to really help those business managers manage their business in a much better way and be much more accountable to their own budget. And so the type of expenses we're talking about here uh, are travel-related expenses, are uh, department purchases. What are we talking about? Oh, it, 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 certainly travel is an expense, and travel is typically the most discretionary expense item you can have. But the biggest expense item is typically compensation. And we get involved in, now certainly HR is the one that runs compensation, and they're talking about what, you know, where people should be compensated and so on. But we have a hand in that, and throughout my entire career, whether I've been at Digital Realty or at other firms, HR and FP&A have always been great partners, and it's the same thing here, where we work together to make sure that when we have, uh, you know, somebody, maybe you have a, a new position or somebody who vacates a role at a director level, you've got to ask yourself, is that a director level role? Would you be better off hiring a senior manager? What's the cost? Should it be hired in San Francisco or New York, or maybe it's that person could be very expensive, or should, you know, Dallas or Atlanta or Los Angeles, something else, where maybe it's a, it's a cheaper market should come into play. All of those things are questions that both HR and finance get involved in. So you could have everything from personnel and costs associated with personnel to vendor management and signing vendor contracts, uh, looking at should, is it better to prepay expenses? Can you get a better deal for that uh, versus going and I think it's having it build as, as the business moves forward? Uh, there's a lot of different aspects. And I would look at it as FP&A really influences the entire P&L. And when it comes to expense management, every aspect, every GL account that's there on the expense side, FP&A is typically engaged in. You know, you, uh, you shared something there I found interesting, and it's a, a line of questioning I haven't asked before. Um, you, you mentioned how in your earlier parts of your career, you, you have observed how FP&A and HR are great partners together. And I, I have to believe uh, not every business function is the alignment achieved as swiftly or easily as perhaps it is with HR. Maybe that's the way to express it. 
whereas other functions present other types of challenges, some of which are, are more significant. And I would point out that as I do interviews with CFOs, um, frequently sales, uh, there's a friction for whatever reason at times with sales, whether that's FP&A in sales or what have you. It's, I'm thinking more broadly, to be honest. But am I right about that? Do, do certain business functions um, present uh, perhaps uh, larger challenges when it comes to aligning with FP&A? So I would actually say it's not a, a function. It's a, it's, a, it's a people, it's a personality issue sometimes. Uh, I've been in cases where HR has been very difficult for FP&A to work with where they say, no, we don't want to expose certain compensation data because this is what we control, and they kind of put up walls. Um, I've also worked, and we actually had a, our former person here at Digital Realty, a uh, former sales leader, who was incredibly open with FP&A, and we were fantastic partners on the sales, with, between sales and FP&A. Um, and it's still a fantastic relationship that we have today, even with our new leader. So it's not necessarily about a function having an issue. It's more about that leader's approach. And I'll give you a really good example of this. Uh, there are, throughout my entire career I've seen this, there are typically executives who fall into one or two buckets. One bucket says, I want FP&A at the table with me when I'm making my decision. They're a valuable strategic partner. And you are in with them from the beginning, and they're open to your ideas. Another one says, I don't want finance to know what's going on. I want to manage my business the way I want to manage it, and I'm only going to show what I need to show to finance. And you have that in every line of business. It just really comes down to the leader's personality. And certainly, FP&A will have a better relationship with those people who are open to working with us. And the challenging side comes to when people put up those walls. Because then it's sometimes when you're in FP&A, you got to say, look, you know, I, I get it. You don't want to show this, but we really have to have that data. And it becomes a little more of a difficult relationship. And those are things that you just have to work through. But I would say it's, it's across all lines of business. There are fantastic partners we have at Digital Realty that are, you know, in every area of the company. And throughout my entire career, there have been different areas that have been more difficult to work with, but it usually comes down to the personality of the leader more than the line of business itself. Well, Glenn, I, I think I promised you three questions, but I think we're up to number five. So we're going we're gonna to end with this one. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as an FP&A leader? Well, it's really to do a better job. Actually, we do this today where we have driver data and metrics of here's what, what's going on in the business, and we have our financial data, and we report on both. But it's connecting that data, You're making sure that we're working under similar definitions, but also telling the right stories and making sure that at, at the end of the day, what we really want to do is be able to tell a story with our financial data. But financial data doesn't drive itself. There are underlying factors to that. You could look and say, well, your commission's expense is over budget. But commission's expense is going to be over budget because sales are typically up, which should also show revenues being higher. That could be because you had a particular promotion around something or something happened, you landed a large client, those types of things. And it's really going and explaining the full picture of what's going on and not just the one aspect of the budget that you may be talking about in a particular report. So. Over the next year, one of the things that uh, my team is going to be focused on is really looking at what those business drivers are, how we could start incorporate, incorporating them better into our reporting, and being able to tell that more complete story. Because when you put the complete story around, you have not only do you have a bigger impact with the business, but you're going to have a much greater impact on the decision-making process to make sure the company is making the best and most informed decisions they can. Glenn Snyder, thank you for joining us on CFO Fault Leader. Thank you for having me. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, 
The CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.